welcome uh, to this Institute for Government event on preparing for future challenges and how government uses science. It's fantastic to see so many of you here in person uh, at a, a real live event. We're all very excited about that. Um, <laughs> thank you very Enjoy. much to Imperial College London and the Royal Society for supporting this event. Um, uh, we all know that it's been an extraordinary couple of years through this pandemic. Uh, it's been an extraordinary couple of years in particular for scientists. They've been right at the heart of all of this. Um, and, you know, the current government likes to talk about being led by science. It aspires to the UK <laughs> becoming a science superpower. Um, but the pandemic definitely exposed some problems with the way the government uses science. And I think it also exposed a sort of wider lack of resilience um, across parts of our society. Um, so the purpose of this panel really is to reflect on that COVID experience, what it's exposed about how prepared we were or, or weren't, um, and then to look ahead and think broadly about the role of science, and that includes social science, um, in how we prepare for future challenges. Uh, we've got a great panel to do it. So going from right to left, we've got Chion Wura MP. Uh, she's Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Digital, uh, former engineer. She's been one of the most interesting uh, thinkers for a long time, I think, uh, within Labour on the role of science and technology in the economy. She's written some brilliant articles for the New Statesman on that, which I'd encourage you to read. She's very kindly squeezed us in among many other commitments. I think she needs to leave us in about sort of 20 minutes or so. Yes. Um, so going to come to Chi first, and I'm going to give you a quick chance to ask Chi a question if anyone has a burning question for Chi before she does have to head off. Um, next, we have Sir Mark Walport. Um, Mark's held key positions at the top of UK science for, for several decades. Um, so after a career in uh, medicine at Imperial, uh, he was director of the Wellcome Trust. Then, of course, he was government chief scientific advisor from 2013 through 2017. And then he was the first CEO of UK Research and Innovation um, until last year. And as you all know, he's been a, a key member of SAGE and often on our airwaves over the last uh, 20 months. Uh, next, we have Aisha Hazarika. Um, Aisha is a broadcaster and political commentator who writes columns in the Evening Standard and the Eye, and presents on Times Radio, <coughs> Saturdays and Sundays, four till seven. Yep. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, uh, a former political advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. She's written a very good book on PMQs as well. Again, encourage you to read that one. It's on my shelf at home. Um, uh, and then on my left, we have Professor Lord Layard. Uh, Lord Layard's Emeritus Professor of Economics at LSE. Uh, his career is focused on education and well-being. Uh, known as the UK's happiness czar, uh, he advised uh, new Labour governments um, and was a key architect of the New Deal employment programme. Um, and he's written numerous books. His latest one is called Can We Be Happier? So if you have any questions about that, you can come and ask him afterwards. Um, and last but very much not least, we have Professor Mary Ryan. Mary's interim vice provost for research and enterprise at Imperial College London. She leads a research group looking at nanoscale materials, as well as leading Imperial's Transition to Zero Pollution program, um, which does brilliant interdisciplinary research on net zero and other environmental targets. So I'm going to start by asking uh, my panel a few questions and having a short discussion. We're then going to have around 20, 25 minutes uh, for questions from you. Um, please raise your hand if you have a question. Wait for the microphone to come to you. And if you can, say who you are uh, and, and where you're from. Uh, if you can keep your question short and to the point, uh, that will enable us to get lots of questions in. 
A uh, bit of housekeeping. So this event is uh, public and on the record. It will be on our website uh, afterwards. Uh, there'll be a member of IFG staff taking photographs. Um, we're not expecting any fire alarm drills. So if you do hear a sound, please make your way out of the building. And we'll be live tweeting the event from our account at IFG events using the hashtag IFG lab lab 21. Um, so if you want to join the conversation on Twitter, please do. Okay. Chi, um, how would a Labour government use science to achieve its aims? Fabulous. Well, thank you. Let me start <laughs> by thanking you, Tom, for or thanking the Institute for, Go for Government and Imperial College um, and uh, the Royal Society for organising this event. And uh, thank you for that fantastic introduction. And uh, thank you. It's so fantastic to see so many people in this room, so many people who are passionate about science and policy and labor, the intersection of so many things that I like. And that brings me to my first point, actually, which is to say as carefully as I can that I don't believe a labor government would use science because I believe a labor government, I know a labor government would not have such a transactional relationship with science. Labor is the party of the future, and it's the party of the white heat of technology. And I believe that science and the pushing back of the boundaries of knowledge are innate to humanity, but equally, or equally importantly, at the same time, they are one of the, what I would call the twin engines of progress for humanity, being you know, science and um, a progressive labor government, the twin engines of, of progress for, for, for our country. So we wouldn't use science, but science is and would be at the heart of our vision and implementation of that vision for the country. And in the UK, we have a fantastic world-leading scientific tradition, you know, from Isaac Newton to Stephen Hawkins, from Ada Lovelace to... Rosalind Franklin, and of course, I've got to mention Newcastle, born Peter Higgs, the discovery of the discoverer of the Higgs uh, boson, um, as well as Parsons and uh, the, the the first um, that's Rachel Parsons, the first uh, naval engineer, a woman uh, from Newcastle. Um, so, you know, but that is you know my enthusiasm, our enthusiasm for for science and how it can change working people's lives is why innovation is at the heart of uh, labor's industrial and strategy. So one key example for, you know, we want to raise R&D spending as a proportion of GDP in this country to 3%. Currently, it's 1.7%, which is at the bottom of you know, most of the league tables. The Tories' ambition, if you can call it that, is 2.4%, which is like it's mediocre. I mean, it's average, you know. Uh, we want to, we are a, sci a leading science nation and we need to reflect that in our investment because we also want to democratize science and I know that may that may worry the scientists on the panel so I will explain that but it's about you know helping direct it towards the public good rather than the expectation that the markets will solve everything yeah. so we I, you know I believe strongly in science for science sake but I also believe very strongly in the role science can play in transforming democratizing and improving the lives of so many and I think you know the, the returns of science have been well established I'll just quote the campaign for science and engineering that found that for every one pound invested by the government on research, we get 20 to 30 pence per year back each and every year. So that the, 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 
the argument for the investment in science is there. But I think we also need to look more broadly about tackling the shortfall of STEM workers if we're to realize this point of um, democratizing science. So to encourage you know, women, those from uh, BAME and less privileged backgrounds into STEM, something which this government, other governments as well, has failed to achieve. But it's much more important now, if you like it. So it's even more important mm. now because our future, our future economy depends on building what we call an innovation nation, which means that science and innovation are part of our kind of cultural DNA and heritage, that it's for everyone, it's not just for a few, because that's the only way we'll A, be competitive, more than competitive, successful on the global stage, but also the structure of work is being transformed, automation, artificial intelligence, etc. We need to be delivering the skills which will ensure that artificial intelligence and these technologies are assistive to people, to workers, and not replacing workers. So key to becoming a science superpower and to using science effectively is developing our science is a is something for everyone and that will also help turn ideas and invention into commercial usage because that's something else we've been less successful at actually turning sort of science into jobs and products and services which are sold here and so i mean just so just two more points and i'm talking one exact one key example of a differentiator also is the government's flagship program for science, the Advanced Research and Innovation Agency, you know, we, which is eight hundred million uh, pounds of taxpayer money. We support a high risk, uh, high reward science agency, but we thought it should have had a mission to help direct it to, towards public good, and that mission should have been climate change. Because if we're not all, so if our economy is not being transformed to be green as well as sustainable, high innovation, high productivity, it won't be around for long enough to make the difference it really needs to so um yeah just fine then what what concerns me as an engineer and, and as someone who believes in science most you know because science is not we all agree that science is important if you like but what concerns me most about this government is the total lack of coherence in their approach to science. I mean, we're on the fifth change of science minister in just 27 months. You know, we want a long-term plan for science, but we want a long-term science minister as well. Um, and we, in the, the sort of the plethora of in initiatives, we've had an innovation strategy, an R&D roadmap, a science plan, a set grant challenges, sector deals, uh, at least one reorganization of UKRI. But we still don't have a plan for science with funding attached to it so that we know how we are going to reach even the 2.4%. It's about rearranging the, the deck, the, you know, deck chairs, if you like, on the ship of science. And I want to know where that ship is going because I believe that is what is going to transform working people's lives in this country. Thank you, Chi, and thank you for uh, taking us. Taking us into the history and sort of setting out such a broad uh, vision of how Labour would be using science. But just before I bring bring any of the audience questions in, I wanted to ask you about the COVID experience. So you've been scrutinising government, been watching this this happen in real time as a member of the opposition. What have you made of the way the government has been drawing in scientific advice? You know, scientists from outside. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I'm I'm so glad that we are where we are now, if you like, and that we are we are here and we have our, our you know we have our ninety percent COVID vaccination. But I think there was so many and and the vaccine, you know, building on 
if you like, our strengths in life sciences from, from research investment for many years. Um, but there were so many issues, I think, with the way in which the government, the government used science. And I'm afraid that, you know, as somebody once said, a drunk uses a, a lamppost for um, support rather than for illumination um, in terms of its, um, you know, we are led by the science when clearly we weren't being led by the science uh, in, 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 the, in some of the policy pronouncements. Um, I thought there was a lack of transparency in terms of who was on the key science, giving the key science advice, which meant that we couldn't distinguish between what was political and what was scientific. That was a that was a big issue. But I think the most, I'm sorry, I could go on forever, but the most important thing was that the lessons from COVID, you know, was about the private and public sector working together. It was about government doing what government, you know, should do, which was to say, we want to, you know, we want to be there and we are going to sort of de-risk these certain elements like manufacturing, like, you know, we'll, and we'll give you a big contract. So, you know, that, you know, you know, that you have the resources to, to get there, uh, what government, what they seem to have decided that the lesson from COVID is, is that the you know the private sector can do it, uh, and so the, the, so I think you know my big takeaway is that this government has not taken the right lessons from COVID, which is about you know working working together, making the right investments, and enabling us to get where the public good needs us to be, and I feel that's the biggest gap. Brilliant. Does anyone have a burning question for Chi? Yes, we've got one down down the front here and another one there. Sorry, I'm just going to take those <laughs> oh, no, two, no. I'm afraid, and then I'm going to turn to the rest of the panel. Yeah. We'll uh, take simple, two together. Yeah, a simple question. Um, I think everyone will ask Is COVID near on the decline, or are we expecting another wave? Ooh, okay. simple Penny, question. Can we, just, <laughs> we have one more question down the front here. Hello, Lydia Hyde, uh, watching the South End East and scientist and chartered engineer. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, my question is, I feel that um, the science community and the engineering community struggles to get its own voice out there. So the way that science is being presented to the public is through politicians and through their own agenda to um, get their own kind of uh, angle on it. So how do we as a community... Um, get the, the truth out there and have our own voice. Great. Okay. Those are two amazing, fantastic questions, which I think other members of the panel will no doubt want to contribute on. I mean, in terms of is, is COVID over, you know, I think um, COVID is not over, and I think COVID and our response to COVID has to be part of how, you know, the, of how we live our lives in the future, you know, because we, we there are other th threats from other you know, viruses, etc., which we need to be much more prepared for. But when it comes to the vi to COVID itself, the pools of infection. I mean, I look at the infection rates in Newcastle every day, and the pool of infection there is, you know, is is, is significant and is huge indeed. It's higher than it was uh, um, for for much of last year. So, you know, COVID hasn't gone away, and we have to in living with it. And I would like to say this to many. Tory backbenchers, living with it does not mean ignoring it. You know, we need to be taking sensible and uh, precautions as advised by the science. And I know that the scientists on this panel will respond on that. Um, now, the question that you asked is like, I, you know, again, it's one I could, sorry, to talk about for a ages. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Firstly, you know, I do think as, as a chartered engineer and a scientist, you can raise your voice in policy by engaging in politics, whether it's at a local level or at a national level. And I think we do need to see more scientists and engineers in, in the house, I suppose I would say that, we, we don't know. But I'd also say that um, you, you know, it, 
scientists and engineers are in a really strong position in that you are trusted. You know, people always ask me why I went from a reputable profession like engineering into science <laughs> politics. You know, you're trusted, you know, if people believe, in it, which is right, right, that you make decisions on the basis of the evidence. And at the same time, often scientists and engineers are reluctant to use that platform to influence policy because, you know, policy and politics uh, is not always quite so evidence-driven, shall I say. But I do think it's really important that you use that platform. And so, for example, I've noticed that the Royal Society and the Campaign for Science and Engineering, the two briefings they've set out in advance of the, of the spending review are much more pointed in their criticism of the government. You know, you know it's, it's the same things that have been happening for the last you know, two or three years, as I've talked about. But now, finally, I think it's being, becoming more articulate. And I do think, I think, you know... Um, it's like, I, I believe in science so much, but I do think scientists also have a duty to believe in people in the public and be honest with them and speak out. It's, and that's, you know, it's a great platform from which to speak out. Otherwise, we are not going to have the, um, otherwise we're not going to have the well-informed policy decisions we need. So, so I suppose you personally, you know, get involved in politics and come on this platform and speak out about it next time. <laughs> okay. Thank you, T, and thank you for, um, thank you for making time. Um, Mark, um, turn to you now. Um, why is using science in government difficult? You spend a lot of time within government in, in sort of senior positions. What's hard about it? What should we learn from COVID? Okay, well, I mean, there's a lot to learn. Um, and um, I mean, first, I just want to make a general comment, which is that and it echoes Chi in some ways. Our modern world has been shaped by the application of science by engineers and technologists. And we can see an enormous need for that in terms of challenges we face, climate, energy security, biodiversity, health. So that's the first thing. Um, and science really matters. Viscount Haldane, in his famous report on the machinery of government in 1918, said that he thought that government would work better if it took more account of evidence. <laughs> and I think that we can all say amen to that. Um, so why is it difficult for government to use science well? Well, I think firstly, there's an issue of capacity, actually. So science needs good customers. It needs officials who understand science. It needs uh, government ministers to understand science and to appreciate its importance. So that's the first issue, I think, that it needs a good customer. Um, secondly, I think it's quite it's important to know what the role of the scientific advisors are. So it's the job of scientists, engineers and technologists, to tell government what's known about things, be it coronavirus, be it climate or anything else, what is uncertain and that's very important and at the start of covid almost everything was uncertain and then what is unknown but it's not the job of scientists to tell government what the policy should be that is you government is the other people we elect it's their decision um and that then takes us into the difficulties so where are the areas of difficulty and there's a really important set of areas of difficulty which is where science meets values and so covid is a very good example of that uh, the, res the policy response to COVID is we want to stop the infection, and that involves keeping people apart, because the virus is a very simple thing. It will jump from one person to the next, and it's proximity that does that. But it is difficult for governments to deprive people of their liberties, um, and it's more difficult for liberal democracies to do that than other governments. And so, you know, clearly, with the power of the retrospectoscope, which is an enormously powerful instrument, <laughs> it, it took too long to deprive us of our liberties at the beginning of coronavirus. And as a result, it was very much more widely spread. 
But this is a fairly generic issue. Uh, genetically modified organisms. Now, that's a really powerful technology. And people tend to look at it and say, are GMOs a good thing or a bad thing? Ridiculous question, actually. It's always what gene, what organism, what purpose? But there are some people who feel we shouldn't fiddle with nature. And that's a sort of values issue. Um, and that, again, is something for politicians to resolve in a democratic society. Embryo research is another example of that. People have very strong conscientious beliefs, which are, and you know, in a plural democracy, some people in this room will think it's fine, and others won't. Um, again, that's for a democracy to resolve. Nuclear energy is another one. There are posts outside this building. Uh, the science case for the safety of uh, nuclear power, it's one of the safest forms of energy. But people have values-based positions around the sort of miasma of radiation. That, 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 but, you know, the facts actually don't support the fact that you know, nuclear energy is very, very safe. So that's the first set of difficulties. And then I think a second set, and I, I'll probably stop at that point to allow others to, to, to debate, but is we're very bad at paying for insurance policies. Um, and if you really want the lesson of COVID, it's that we underinvested in public health and have done so for decades. This isn't a, an issue for one political party, it's an issue for governments generically. So uh, in the early 2000s, the public health laboratory system, which was responsible for the surveillance of infection and for track and trace essentially, was moved into district hospitals. It became a service. Um, and we have underinvested for years in public health. And the challenge is, that if you are the National Health Service, well, really, in many ways, you're the National Disease Service because you have to pay for the urgent priorities. And so a government department faced with operational difficulty is bound to prioritise a waiting list for surgery over investing in track and trace systems and other systems for keeping people healthy. And that applies to climate, where the question is an intergenerational one, which is how much do we invest now to prevent really terrible things for future generations. Um, and um, uh, that's something that Richard Laird could talk about. But I mean, there's evidence that we are very good at thinking about our children and our grandchildren, but we apply a sort of 100% discount rate to our grandchildren's children. That's the problem. Um, and so these are some of the things that make it genuinely difficult for uh, politicians, government to take note of, of science. But nevertheless, it is crucially important and my very final point at this point is to say that one of the reasons we had a coronavirus vaccine so fast was because we invested in molecular biology, we invested in all the discoveries around ribonucleic acid, um, and the preparation of this uh, vaccine goes back to Sarah Gilbert's work from 2015 when she was preparing a vaccine for MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory System. And without that long-term insurance policy of training scientists, engineers, and technologists, then we really are in trouble for the future. Thank you, Mark. And I know the rest of the panel are very keen to pick up. <laughs> Sorry for curtailing your applause as well. Um, the rest of the panel will be really keen to pick up that point on resilience. Just while I'm with you, I wonder if you'd like to comment on the question we had from the gentleman here oh. as our resident sage member <laughs> on the panel. Um, where we are on COVID at the moment, we're going into the winter, you know. So, so, so the virus is doing very well, thank you. Actually, the, the Delta variant is much more transmissible than any of the previous variants and is at an enormous prevalence around the world. What is happening is that the clinical impact of coronavirus is significantly, though not totally, controlled. 
And that's why vaccination has been so important and also some of the drug trials, which means that, for example, dexamethasone reduces your mortality. Mm. But uh, I'm afraid that coronavirus could have many more surprises for us. And this virus is in human populations for good. Aisha, um, you've been covering this period uh, as a journalist. Um, I wonder what you think about, you know, what the public understands of the way that governments or, or sort of opposition parties want to use science or sort of talk about the science. And then I also wonder where you think the opportunities for Labour are in all of this. Um, well, it's been fascinating as a journalist covering this. Um, also very, you know, frightening uh, as well and what's so fascinating is that you have different kind of crises in politics and different people emerge and scientists have become the new sort of rock stars <laughs> in terms obviously Sir Mark is uh, like lead singer obviously but you know we got so used to you know Debbie Schrieder, Jonathan Van Tam you know all of these people we have become sort of household names and of course you know science has become so important through devastating um, necessity. And what I found really interesting sort of covering my show is that the public, when we have politicians on talking about the coronavirus, my listeners would sort of message in just say, saying like, I literally just really don't have any trust in what these people are saying. We have anyone to do with science or, or data. So Mark's been on my show many times as, as, as many of the other key kind of um, scientists. And the public, certainly my listeners have felt so reassured because they feel like they are getting facts. There's no spin, there's no agenda, and they're not being preached to in a sort of values point of view at a time when we're sort of polarized on our values as well. And I also found as well, like even within the journalists that we use, like on my show, we would normally use political correspondents, a lot political commentators, but actually some of the voices that my listeners have really valued are people like Tom Whipple, who is the science, um, brilliant, brilliant science journalist in the Times, Tom Calver, who's like a data journalist, but he has been just very cool and calmly sort of going through everything. And I definitely my listeners have found that way more reassuring than, than when the politicians um, come on. And I think we sort of found that as well with these new kind of daily briefings, which became sort of like our reality TV show every day. And, you know, we had the next slide became the sort of meme and <laughs> Jonathan Van Tam with his football analogies and, and all of that. But these scientists just became so, so, so important. But what I think is is really interesting is, is the point that the lady at the front made, which used the word truth. So we should be in a situation, and this is the thing I found really hard and weird and difficult as a journalist, but somebody who'd also been political beforehand, which was you kind of imagine that when a sort of devastating crisis like this happened, which was literally like watching the film Contagion unfold, you would hope that we would be led by science, we would believe in the science, it would be an absolute no-brainer that the science was the, the truth. Yet because we are in this also mad world of so hyperpolarized right now, rife with misinformation on social media, the facts, that the truth that, that, that you guys as scientists were giving the public through people like me unvarnished, suddenly that truth was contested and you, that's one of the things I just find unbelievable when we were in this absolute crisis and someone like Sir Mark, who is an absolute expert, is sort of being contested by some wellness influencer on Instagram 
or some shock jock on the radio, not my radio station, obviously, but, you know, or Nicki Minaj. You know, it's just like, what is, what is going on? And I think this is the thing that I think has been fascinating and profoundly worrying during this pandemic. Science has absolutely saved us. The brilliance of people like Sir Mark and Sarah Gilbert and, and all the, the people that the absolute scientific heroes and yet we are living in a, in a world where polarization and the fact that we are so skewed on everything and we have this kind of mad you know we've got to be anti-expert on everything now which of course is a, is a hangover from from brexit the fact that you see chris witty who should be being sort of lauded getting attacked um out on the on the street you know so i really do take the point about science being accessible it's really really important but I do worry about the rise of the kind of armchair epidemiologist and when it gets to the point like I have friends of mine and I'm really shocked by this they are they're not the cliched oh I don't I'm ignorant or I'm from a BME community I do understand that some people from BME communities you know could have vaccine hesitancy because of they have a mistrust in institutions and how they've interacted with the health service you look at maternal mortality or on race there's a but I know people who are white, educated, middle class and privileged who have got this information from Instagram that because they eat organic food and because they're really, really healthy, they don't need to get the, the vaccine or, or they read somewhere that because they had, you know, COVID once sort of 18 months ago, but now they, they eat organic food, they, they don't need the vaccine. So I think this kind of war for truth is so important mm. with science. And I do hope that as we kind of go forward, that, you know, we will come out of, of this, um, you know, pandemic soon. But obviously there is going to be something horrendous around the corner. The rise of the science expert mustn't just be this kind of blip. It has to be something which is constant. We have to be used to seeing scientists on our TV screens. We have to become scientifically literate our citizens and the, what the politicians must not do or on any side say this you all just get me getting told to shut up now because some of my side of the building is texting me but one of the things is we must not weaponize scientists we must not politically weaponize it whether it's for a political party whether it's for a political ideology whether it's to promote libertarianism versus like a big state we have to keep sort of science pure and we have to keep science truthful and the politicians and people like me in the media have a really big responsibility on that thank you Aisha and I think really really helpful to broaden this conversation out actually and talk about that sort of claim to truth and also how the public consumes science as well because that's been such an important part of it and that image of the sage rock band will uh, stick, <laughs> stick in many people's heads for some time um lord layard um we've talked a little bit about some of the ways we've you know seen this lack of resilience through the covid pandemic we've seen some of society's vulnerabilities i wonder if drawing on your work on on well-being and, and your role as a social scientist you know what you what do you think needs to change in terms of government's approach to all of this well i think one of the things that covid has shown is that you can't really uh, have a coherent policy without some overall uh, overarching criterion against which you're trying to balance economics, life, mental health, etc. Uh, and of course, many of us have been arguing for years that it should be the well-being of the people, both the present generation and, as Mark said, future generations. Uh, this is actually a very old idea uh, going back to the 18th century, but it is now becoming practical. 
because we've got the new science of subjective well-being. So from surveys, experiments and so on, we know a huge amount about how important uh, some things are to people and how less important uh, other things are. And I want all political parties, especially our party here, to adopt well-being as the objective, uh, to get things in perspective about what's really important uh, and what isn't. Now, you might say what chances are that politicians would object, uh, adopt this objective. Um, well, it's in their interest because our research shows that the things which determine the outcomes of elections, both in every European country, Britain, US, are more just how satisfied people are with their lives in general uh, than the economy. And actually, that's not surprising because if you look at what matters to people, uh, the economy isn't the most important thing uh, for most people. So the research shows that if you're trying to explain the spread of happiness in the world or in this room, uh, the biggest factors are health, mental, uh, of course, as important as physical. The next most important factors are human relationships and the family at work and so on. And then comes income. But uh, unfortunately, we've got into uh, a situation where maybe dating back especially to Margaret Thatcher, uh, this huge priority uh, has been given to income. And it's really time to change that. Uh, the social infrastructure is more important than the physical infrastructure, for example, number one point uh, for the spending review that is, is coming up. So just a, a comment or two on what this implies for science policy. I mean, obviously, it requires some social scientists <laughs> if these things are, are so important. Uh, it also the fact that social science is rather cheap. <laughs> uh, so couldn't we have a bit more? It, it, it is an extraordinary fact that while the natural sciences have not altogether migrated the leadership of them across the Atlantic, the leadership of social sciences has. This is an absolutely shocking fact due to underfunding uh, and under-rewarding social scientists so that all the cleverest people who study social science uh, end up in the city. This is an absolute disgrace. Uh, and it's, it's down to science policy. It could perfectly well be changed uh, by the policy uh, of the science research councils. Uh, so social science, uh, and within it, of course, uh, the study of well-being. So Mark knows that I've been agitating for a much more coordinated uh, system of the funding of well-being research uh, in Britain by UKRI. But we, we are actually near to being a, a world leader, but it's still very fragmented, very lacking uh, in career prospects. Uh, so that, that would be my number one shift in science policy, more, more on social science. I, I, I th we were talking about <laughs> policies within the natural sciences, uh, and I was saying to Mary, uh, I mean, looking across looking across 100 years, when, of course, there will be massive economic growth as conventionally measured, it's absolute nonsense that this is coming to an end. Um, massive, massive growth. There are diminishing returns to material progress as a way of trying to make people uh, enjoy their lives better. Mm. Whereas if you look inside the person, you look inside their body, and inside their mind, 
there are almost, you can imagine, almost infinite ways in which you could just go on, little by little, of course, it's gradual, uh, improving the quality uh, of human experience. So I actually think that even economic growth as conventionally measured will increasingly over this century be inside the human body, physical and mental, um, uh, and there will be less of it, certainly if rationality prevails, there'll be less of a fraction of it in terms of material uh, progress. But of course, on the purely material side, the absolutely overwhelming issue is, is climate change. I'm delighted to find that Mary, Mary's engaged in this. Uh, Mark knows that um, I was involved with some others um, in uh, pushing for an international um, uh, revolution um, in publicly funded uh, clean energy research to have it on a much better funded basis, doubling of funding, um, and much better coordinated. This has to an extent happened through what is called mission innovation. But I'd like to do a little test. Who here has heard of mission innovation? Well, this is the world's response to the need for scientists to solve the climate change crisis. And nobody has heard of it. Um, And it is obviously the responsibility of governments in every country, but it is the responsibility of this, this country's government to announce with a trumpet blast that it, it, its top priority in the funding of, of the physical sciences is climate change, that it has a mission-oriented approach to this, um, where working parties are put together to tackle key problems in the same way as the moonshot was, was organized, and that this will attract more and more talent um, and, and we will get over these terrible crises uh, that is facing us. So uh, I would say science priorities, social science and psychology, uh, biology uh, and neuroscience uh, and climate, uh, energy, energy research and of course well-being. Brilliant. <clears throat> Thank you. Mary, um, uh, as a sort of scientist on the outside, leading a big team at Imperial, um, how have you found, you know, engaging with policymakers, what works, what doesn't, and, and then take us into this big question of net zero, because you're, you're leading this research on it. Is the government getting it right in terms of using the science to get us towards that critical goal? Well, I, I, I guess I'll answer the question, the broader question first about how to engage as a scientist on the outside versus on the inside. Um, and I think it speaks a little bit to, to the question we have in here about speaking the truth and what is that truth. Scientists are trained to talk to scientists. We don't train scientists to condense those really complex issues, to, to, to I guess, to extract from the uncertainties what is known. And it's a bit like what Sir Mark was saying right at the beginning. How do you communicate the salient points well? And so I think as, as academic institutions, we need to do a much better job of training people to be able to engage in the right kind of conversation, to deliver the right kind of briefings, and, and, and simplify the message right to what is known versus what is uncertain. And I think this whole idea about decision-making of complex systems under uncertainty is actually a research topic in itself, right? And, and extracting learnings from that is really important. So scientists have to want to engage. 
I think if you if you look at but if you go and ask any scientist or an engineer why are you a scientist, normally they say it's because I want to make a difference. Right. And and actually that message that it, if you want to make a difference, a really important way to do that is engaging with policy is probably the best route to making a difference on the ground. The mission of Imperial College and of course, everyone at Imperial College knows this, is the, the excellence in science, technology, engineering, medicine for the benefit of society. That's what we are all there to do. So we really ought to all be engaging. Um, we have an initiative, the Forum at Imperial, that tries to do that. It helps engage and connect. Um, and it could be better and it could be bigger, I think, is, is part of that message. There's a huge importance of the investment of time, right? And how do we prioritise what time we do and use our research? So investment of the organizations, investment of the individuals to enable that. Um, and not just investment of time, but timely investment of that time, right? So making the right policy advice at the right time, I think is really important because as we know, hindsight is really easy to be able to make decisions based on. And I think one of the messages that we did learn from the, the recent COVID and, and, and some have said this, we acted too late. And by acting too late, we made the problem much worse for ourselves. And we've already acted too late on the climate crisis, and we are still procrastinating on many of these decisions. And we are making it worse and harder for ourselves and more expensive. Um, and essentially, we should be acting now. I think we are not acting now, <laughs> in answer to your question, Tom. We're saying lots of, we're saying the right things. I don't think we are enacting the right policies. And that comes back to this challenge of what are the right policies to enact, because it's really uncertain about which levers will have the most important effect. Um, and I think this comes down to one of the key things that scientists and engineers can do, and that's and linked to the work we're doing at Imperial, is how do you study a system? How do you study a really complex system and understand all the intricate, complex interactions that that system has? And, and if you look at policy initiatives right now, you can think about decarbonisation of heat or decarbonisation of transport. How do you manage health and well-being in a climate crisis? How do you respond to weather events, severe weather events? But of course, these are not independent scenarios and if we treat them as independent scenarios and independent policy initiatives then we won't get an optimized result so i think that particular aspect really needs better articulation by the scientists and engineers and then better implementation in the policy to see how they um, how they build um, i think we need better structures for interaction right, in both directions right so it's actually really hard as a scientist to know who on earth can I go talk to? You mentioned mission innovation. I've heard of it. I've even tried to talk to them. <laughs> it's really hard to find the right person in the right part of government that, to enable. So, so I guess better signposting of ways to in and and on the corollary, how does a, a, a government advisor or politician find the right scientist, the right engineer with the right information? So our organisations need to have better <coughs> communications and you know, I guess beacons. Of, you know, here's our centre of excellence. We have a brilliant centre for climate change at Imperial College. You can come and find that. But where, how do you find the other type of scientists you need? So I think that two-way thing is important. Um, and I think I would just make one last point on resilience. Um, and I think it's really important. We have not got much resilience in infrastructure, in health service, in the economy. But I think also there's a, I think there's a, a misunderstanding that resilience equals just extra capacity. So therefore, resilience gets tied up in arguments about efficiency, right? And it becomes a purely economic, I want this as streamlined as efficient as possible. Whereas we ought to be seeing resilience in terms of, yes, capacity, but also flexibility and adaptability. And how can our systems respond 
And how can we think about building resilience in ways that's not just doubling the investment, right? It's mm. about rethinking those systems. Brilliant. Okay, we've got about 20 minutes for questions from you. If you could say who you are and try and keep them short, Penny will come around with a microphone. Penny, uh, do you want to start here, lady in the blue? Stand here. Um, <coughs> yes, my name is Anne uh, Corey. I'm from Staley Bridge and Hyde. This is partly in response to uh, Professor Ryan's comment about scientists only talking to scientists. And I'd like to ask, talk about a very simple, <laughs> a very simple contribution. You use the word truth, and Mark used the word truth, and we hear through truth all the time. Now, when you say truth, and you're talking to a scientist, or indeed, if you're talking to me, I have an idea of what you mean. But a vicar thinks, when he hears the word truth, he might be thinking of you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When um, a, a, a person in Blackburn whose neighborhood has been completely inundated with uh, Bangladeshi people that, and he's 65 years old, and he thinks the truth is that we are being destroyed. Our nation has been destroyed by immigrants. Now that's his truth, and that's what he sees around him. So I suggest that scientists use the word, which helps certainly when we talk about um, well-being, the word evidence rather than truth. Now, I know you used that word at the very beginning, but it is evidence that scientists are talking about. And evidence, of course, changes. And that's why the non-scientists will say, oh, well, one scientist says one thing and one scientist says something else. You know, that, that kind of response. But if we could an analyze the word truth and the way it res different people respond to it. Okay. Thank you, and we'll take another question over here. I'll take them in pairs. Uh, oh no, I'll take three at a time. We'll do one more, just the gentleman there in the middle, um, and then I'll put them to the panel. Yes. Hello there, I'm Councillor Sandra Barr from Stevenage Borough Council. Um, my main concern, we talked about happiness and going forward and that COVID will be with us forevermore. Um, and I also uh, was interested in what you were saying. I'm a bit confused whether um, the scientists are the dog or the, they're the tail that's wagging. But for us, as, as um, politicians within local government, we are, are wondering what the scientists are looking at and whether they are looking at the long-term disabilities surrounding post-COVID because we don't seem to be giving being given any data on those people that we will need to support in the future. Thank you. And yes, in the middle. Yeah, um, I just wanted to make a point here. Um, so I quite disagree with the people who think that science should be separated from politics. Um, if we go back to ancient Greece, we can see um, philosophers um, like Plato, for example, <coughs> so they supported um, politics and they supported scientists to become politics. So the only way, politicians, sorry. So the only way how to, um, I believe, the only way how to tackle crisis or certain types of um, pandemics or uh, catastrophes is to include scientists in decision-making process. And I believe scientists should act and should uh, be um, politically involved in politics. So I, I quite disagree. And I think social science is important here because the link between 
um, science and politics is philosophy. So philosophy of science is a key point. And in order for uh, scientists to become politicians, they need to go through philosophy and science, they need to criticize the science itself and um, to um, be involved in, 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 in taking okay. decisions to, uh, to move forward with, with catastrophes and crises like COVID, for example. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Mary, I'll start with you and then I'll bring in Mark and Aisha. So do you want to start off on, so we've got truth versus yeah, evidence got, on the language, got you've got them all written down. Them. Brilliant. I, yes, I would agree. And I think I would not normally use the word truth when I'm talking about science. So that really came from the, the conversation here, because I think truth is subjective. I would prefer the word fact, right? and fact that can be determined by evidence. So yeah, I 100% agree with you. And um, talking about facts, I think is important. And, and then opinion, and then facts, do facts change? Well, as the evidence changes, we might, I guess, tweak what that fact is. You might change the decimal place, right, on your on your, on your understanding. But I, I agree with you on that, and I think it's really important, actually, because people have a lived experience that defines their own truth. And science and the scientific method determines an objective fact. Right? So I think, I think you are correct. I'm going to leave Mark to talk about long COVID, if that's all right, Mark. Mm. <laughs> and then, and I, think, I don't think anyone is arguing that science shouldn't be involved in policy. I think there's a, but there is a, a nuance on the science and evidence-informed policy, right, and how science can inform decisions. And politicians having to make those decisions, <coughs> taking into account a multitude of inputs, right, through the scientific and the technical evidence, the economic impacts, the behavioral social scientist aspects, the long-term economic performance, geopolitical issues, right, that, that might mean that you make a different decision based on what's happening globally versus some local evidence. So I agree 100% there should be more scientists and MPs in government and that policy should be evidence-informed, absolutely. So I don't, I don't think we were in disagreement. Um, maybe a slightly more nuanced in the response. Yes. Um, so science and politics. I used to get asked quite often when I was the government chief scientific advisor why there weren't more scientists in government. And, and I always used to say, well, actually, you can't blame the people who are in government because they've stood for election. And the question is actually why more scientists, engineers, technologists don't stand for politics. Um, and that, I think, to some extent, is because they operate in somewhat different ways. Um, but it would obviously be a good thing if, if I think more scientists did take part. But the politicization of science is a very different issue. You know, at the end of the day, the Earth is roughly spherical. You know, you can't vote on the speed of light. Uh, you can, you know, you might want to describe it in different units, but at the end of the day, it goes at a certain speed. And so there are some things that you can't vote on. Other things you can, and that, in some ways that distinguishes it. Um, and I, I'm not sure I did use the word truth, because actually I, it is the evidence, and it's the job of the advisor to provide the evidence such as it is. But I want to take the question about long COVID and, and bring it together with something that Richard Laird said, which is, and actually Chi, which is, who asks the questions? So there's a great deal of public funding of um, research, definitely not enough if you look at our peer comparators. Um, but who should actually specify how that money is spent? And I think that there needs to be a sensible balance between allowing brilliant researchers to ask interesting questions about the nature of the universe in which we live, about biology, about physics, about chemistry, because we will discover stuff there that will actually change the world in the future, even if it takes 100 years to get there. But I also agree with Richard 
that I don't think the balance of money that's spent on social sciences is enough. And I saw that because I was the chief executive of UK Research Innovation, bringing together all of the research councils, our innovation agency, Innovate UK and Research England. Now, the balance of funding between different disciplines, there isn't actually a right answer to that either, actually. So how much do you spend on physics? How much do you spend on chemistry? How much do you spend on social science? To some extent, you, you, know, you, you, you make a judgment. But that is a political decision. And so ultimately it is ministers, it has been ministers since the beginning of the Research Council system, which again came out of the Haldane report to a significant extent. Um, and uh, ministers over many, many years, this isn't again, it's not a party political issue, have tended not to prioritise the social sciences. And I agree with Richard that they are very good value for money and you get a lot for your money. Um, but those are political decisions. So there is this balance, I think, between politicians, because it is taxpayers' money. You know, it's all of us that are paying for this research, um, and it shouldn't be the scientists that make those decisions. So I, I think there is this question about balance. Um, and I personally also increase the support for the arts and humanities as well, because I think that we get an enormous uh, cultural value from that, and actually that turns into economic value for the nation. So, you know, I couldn't feel more strongly about that and you know conflict of interest declaration i'm now a trustee of the british museum which is an extraordinary organization and the role of our museums in cultural diplomacy is absolutely fantastic and tourism and everything that goes with it so i think there needs to be this balance um and ultimately i think it is for us collectively to sort of work out and i think there is just a, a to make us as a point about social sciences in particular, I think historically politicians are a bit suspicious of social sciences because it does tend to stray into party politics quite easily. And so, you know, when it comes to giving the answers to things that people can vote on the answers, well, we can all vote for that. And social scientists, or in fact, molecular biologists, don't have any special say. We each have one vote. Aisha, did you want to come in on this question of claims to truth? Uh, Debate that you um, yeah, I actually think it was a lady at the front who used the word truth. I don't think anybody on the panel. Yeah. So I was picking up on because I thought I thought it was you know it was interesting. Well, it, it it's so important to um, you know because everybody can have their own truth. I mean, famously, Meghan and Harry started their interview with "This is our truth." You know, it's, so everyone can. And you're right, the lived experience. But we we have the thing that worries me is even though we have you know you talk about facts and evidence. You know, remember Kellyanne Conway, who was Donald Trump's sort of big sort of spokeswoman, one of the most famous quotes she did, one of the very early things, where she came out and she said, well, there are now alternative facts. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and I think you can, we can laugh. I think it was about the size of Donald Trump's yes. inauguration yes. crowd. Yes. <laughs> they were like, there's three billion people. They were like, really, really, was it three? I don't think so. But, and that's funny, but it's not funny when that alternative facts are, are with life and death and, and, and with, with science. So I think, and then that sort of bleeds into the point the gentleman made about politics and, and, and science. I think it would be great if more of our politics was informed by robust science and evidence and fact. I think what we're worrying about is the weaponization of, polit of, of science and facts to suit an, an ideology, to, to suit an, an agenda. I would love there to be more um, scientists in, in Parliament, absolutely. When you look at some of our, our best political leaders, they often have got a science background because they do understand data and they do understand the importance 
for, for evidence. But what I'm really worried about now, and I see it so much in the media landscape as well, that pe people are picking and choosing their experts and picking and choosing their facts to fit their story. And I see this on all spectrums of, of politics, not just one side of politics. And particularly with the kind of libertarian versus, um, you know, big state, and, and you see really bad examples on it on both sides. So I think you, I do think you make a, a, a good point about we should have. I mean, I would just like to see more people in politics that have done something interesting before coming into politics. I think that would actually enrich our politics. Like, <laughs> I mean, I thought one of the best moments in Parliament recently. I mean, in very tragic circumstances, but the Afghanistan debate was so good because there were really great speakers who had experience of being in the military and that's where their speeches were so powerful so we would i'd love to see more of that with scientists um as well okay thank you uh we've got time for one more round of questions i'll take one at the back in the middle there and at the front here um if you could keep them very brief um then we'll get through them all yeah go on uh, just two questions very briefly um richard uh, as you know I'm a, a councillor peter kelly government scientist for 23 years and, uh, and also elected to the uh, Preston City Council. Um, when we started out on this journey on mental health and well-being over 20, 23 years ago, um, pushing a vote in the wrong direction, you brought out a seminal report that looked at the impact of uh, talking therapies over, over um, drug therapies. Where do you think we are now? Because I have just spent the last 18 months on about 200 webinars on mental health directly related to COVID and people's experience of COVID. And if you could comment on the decision today, a behavioral decision not to check on people's COVID status on because it was raining outside. Okay, so there's no bans. Actually, the government, our advice is that in, in a public event like that, you should we should be checking people's COVID, not the, you know, their vaccination status. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, so it's Fiona Carraher from Alzheimer Society. So I think just a point to say that dementia is a really good example of the balance between the breakthrough biomedical and the social sciences. And we need both to have such a, to really tackle what I think is the biggest health and social care crisis that we're facing. But we know the government with their dementia moonshot money, so that's doubling of dementia research that they've committed to, is likely to go more on drug discovery. So thinking about new drugs for the future. So my question is, how do we get ministers and the government to understand that this is such a complex issue? We have to look at it from all the round and social science is going to be critical, particularly for the care of those nearly a million people now and in the next few years. Okay, brilliant, at the back. I think sometimes when we, we say, what can science do for governments? It should be really, what can government do for science? Um, because you really need to have a, a focus on where you're actually going. Uh, it's interesting that you've got, you talked about net zero, and net zero is a quite a wide, wide subject area, and it's not one subject, it's thousands of subjects as to how to, to reach everything. And we seem to be picking on various elements of that for electric cars, for example, um, and ignoring some of the facts out there. So we're ignoring the fact that there might not be enough lithium on the planet to give us enough batteries. So, you know, we, we obviously need to either carry on with electric, we need to be developing alternative battery mechanisms, or... We need to look at alternatives such as hydrogen, which does have an option. We talk about replacing gas, but some of the sub things that we're actually doing, though, we only tell half-truths. You know, we talk about uh, earth source heat pumps, for example. You know, we're doing a comparison against 24-hour usage. If you do a comparison against the way people use central heating, 
it actually comes out more expensive. So knowing full well that you could actually replace the entire gas network as a hydrogen network with modification of boilers, all of that is science that requires doing. And we're actually not doing an awful lot of that at the moment, and we need to actually be developing some of this. So to really reach the goals, um, I know talking to people, I actually work with the um, NHS Net Zero campaign, and um, to actually reach the targets, it's, it's debatable the NHS has got uh, 2040 targets. It's debatable whether, I don't think many people believe, we'll get there in a large part, but whether we'll get there totally is highly disbelieved, to be quite honest. It's also highly disbelieved that we'll get there at 2050 for everything without massive amounts of offsetting because there's a large amount, we're not actually, we're actually succeeding in getting to net zero, we're just offsetting it by spending money elsewhere to do things. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not good for the planet, because it is. But we need that to be across the board. So how do you see us actually going forward and actually making sure that we're developing the right things to actually meet the targets that we're actually promising people mm. uh, and making it so that we actually deliver on things? Because as we stand at the moment, we, we hear a lot of people saying, oh, we'll go to 2030, we'll, you know, and, and we'll bring things forward when actually when you look at the science, there isn't really any standing for that. And we actually need to, to be slightly more honest with people. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to come in reverse order down my panel. You've got three questions to choose from there. Uh, and if you could wrap any final comments you'd like to make into your remarks. So, Mary. Well, I, I will perhaps obviously pick the last question because I mean, I think you could become a sp spokesperson for our uh, zero pollution initiative at Spirit <laughs> College because we've been talking about this for the last few years now. Oh, no. oh. oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> you're absolutely 100% right. This is a systems level problem, right? And we cannot address it within silos. I think there are a few things that are really important for me. You, you talk about electric vehicles. It's a really great example of policy to reduce tailpipe emissions in cities, right? And it, so, it, first of all, we haven't got enough renewable energy to power electric vehicles. Should we have the fleet of them in the country? We don't have enough lithium to build it. And, and even if you stop beyond lithium, the global issues and human rights issues on cobalt mining, for example, that is required for every electric vehicle are atrocious. So we need to rethink how we do that. And I think it's a really great example of a lack of joined up thinking between technology and social science, right? Because instead of saying, let's see how we transport people, how we enable commuting in cities, how people are using their own vehicles, <coughs> and trying to address that as a social science behavioral response, we instead said, how can we just do a swap out of technology? Right? And that, I think, is the wrong response. Electric vehicles are part of the solution, I think, but the technology as it stands is cannot be the whole part. So then you have to join that up. right? You have to join it up to hydrogen, to renewable energy, to commuter behavior, to, to the economic policies. So I absolutely 100% agree there needs to be a systems-level approach. And so that, that means a lot of work. right? It means a lot of investment across government and across different disciplines to bring that together. The roadmaps that exist, I think, are still, they're getting there, but they're still very siloed. So we don't have that plan, and 2030 will be here in the blink of an eye, and we will not be there on target. Richard, do you want to pick up? There was a reader of your report uh, back there, and a question on dementia as well. Y yes. Um, I'm going to make a general point first. Um, I mean, decision-making um, depends crucially on how important you think different things are. Um, and the great value of the well-being approach is it provides some evidence 
and how important different things are. So that that helps to take us, uh, take issues which look as if they're issues of values into the area where they are issues of fact. Um, so that's the direction we have, we absolutely have to move. Um, and you know we would like to to see obviously the treasury spending our money on things which make the biggest difference to well-being per pound spent, whatever it's of. So. Uh, that is the way advice, in my opinion, should be given. So it's not that the advice, maybe this is somewhat different from science policy, but I'm talking about general, the general work of civil service uh, contributing to policy. Has, they've got to give advice, and it should be evidence-based, and that would include evidence on how important different things are. Social care was mentioned just now. There's, there's evidence on how important that is. Um, now, now, what happens in the end, of course, is that the politician takes a decision, and to some extent, it's based on push and shove. But it would be in the politician's interest, as I was arguing at the very beginning, really, to try and use the evidence more, because that would, in the end, make it more likely that the person would be, or the party would be re-elected. Just a quick word on mental health that I was asked about. I mean, we have made a lot of progress, of course, in those 23 years you mentioned um, with, with uh, uh, adult psychological therapy, huge expansion, terribly slow progress with, with uh, child psychological therapy, except for the most severe cases, and, and, and constant statements that mental health expenditure will grow faster than physical health, and in the end it doesn't happen because the CCGs don't spend the money in the way that uh, they were told it was given to them. Um, so we've got to have much, much tighter rein on an accountability uh, on the CCGs to spend the money uh, the way they expected uh, to. And, and more generally, we've got to have a completely different attitude to mental health. So people say about parity of steam, then everybody says, what does it mean? It's absolutely clear what it means. It means if you have a mental health problem, you're less likely to receive nice recommended treatment uh, as if you have a physical health problem. And at the moment, it's a, a difference of at least two to one. So uh, it's one of the most extreme forms of discrimination in our public life. Uh, and it's time to stop. Aisha, final thoughts and um, <laughs> briefly if you would give us slightly against the clock. Um, yeah, well, I mean, would, I think the well-being and mental health stuff is, is so important because in the COVID crisis, we've talked a lot about our, our physical health and uh, terrible kind of physical symptoms and, of course, you know, saved by the sort of vaccine. But, I mean, the we I don't think we even really begin to... We don't really have a sense of the mental health damage that the last 18 months has done. I mean, all, everyone I know who is a therapist or a counsellor right now are having to turn people away because there is just so much mental, there's so many mental health issues around. I mean, a, a, a counsellor friend said that at some point we'll look back and most people have, would have suffered some kind of PSTD, like post-traumatic stress disorder over the last sort of 18 months. And I feel like in terms of policy, we talk a good game on well-being and mental health. Like it's very, it's the buzzword. Everyone says we've got to do more about it. But I think the policies, I think we're still in a very primitive stage, really, in terms of actually 
policymakers thinking holistically and joining up the dots between physical health pressures on the NHS, well-being, mental health, all of these kind of things. I mean, I was speaking to somebody from the shadow health team here at Labour, and they were saying one of the things they really want to do is try and, you know, craft a strategy. And people have talked about this for, for years, if not decades, but it never happens, which is a sort of health policy where the dots are joined up. You know, we always look at the, why why can't anybody get to see a, a GP? Why is it that everyone then just goes to A&E? Why do we let things become uh, acute? Why aren't we investing in kind of, you know, health, uh, you know, looking after ourselves physically, mentally, all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's also quite difficult for policymakers to get their heads around, which is why social science is so, so important. But I remember one thing that David Cameron actually got derided for, but it's actually not a bad idea. You know, he talked about sort of, you know, we have GDP and all of that sort of thing, some kind of like well-being index or some sort of happiness index. I know in Scotland they've they've been trying to um, do this, but all of this requires some quite big radical rethinking how we do policy because policy, and I've worked in government, I was a civil servant, and as a political advisor, the truth is there's hardly any long-term planning done in government for anything because you don't even know how long your minister is going to be in their position for. You don't know how long a government is going to, to be there for. So it doesn't lend itself. You know, the, the untold secret about actual sort of the reality of government, it's all plan. It's all emergency. It's all knee-jerk. It's all responding to something because it is a, it is a crisis. So it, it takes a lot of rethinking. I mean... One thing which I think is really interesting, I mean, slight side, it's a slight side issue, but I think it is interesting thinking. Look at the drugs problem in Scotland, which is just this perennial thing, drug death sort of going up. The Advocate General in Scotland has just announced they're going to try and do something different, which instead of just like arresting people for drugs offences, making sure that they get put into the right sort of rehabilitation. And that's, again, quite a big fundamental shake-up to sort of thinking. And I think that's the kind of thing we're going to have to do if we do want to crack stuff particularly around well-being and, uh, and social science which is so important yeah. and finally mark what can governments do for science any other final thoughts just briefly if you well uh, very briefly uh, it seems to me that there are five things that government needs to care about and it's governments around the world the health the well-being the resilience and the security of citizens and all of those depend on the application of science using engineering and technology we face extraordinary challenges um, and we're seeing some of the sort of complex cascading failures that can go wrong at the moment. So who would have sort of, as it were, linked a rise in gas prices to a couple of fertilizer plants stopping making ammonia, which resulted in stopping the generation of a byproduct carbon dioxide that in this case has been critical for food preservation um, and for uh, killing being brutal, killing animals in a, as humane a way as possible. So we are have very, very interlinked systems. And as we've become more efficient, we've become much less resilient as a society. So I would just say that actually science really matters to government, and it does come at a price. And politicians over the years have said, well, there are no votes in science. Well, there may be, not be directly, but I can tell you there are a lot of indirect votes in it, so mm -hmm. it matters. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Good note to end on. Thank you very much to my panel. Um, <laughs> thank you to you all for coming and thanks for your brilliant questions. Sorry I did not manage to fit all of them in, but we will keep doing lots of events and things on these subjects, so hopefully you'll be able to ask them in future. 
Uh, quick thank you to Imperial and the Royal Society for sponsoring this event. And a quick final plug that our next IFG event here at Labour Party Conference is tomorrow morning on the impact of technological change on public services. So do join us for that if you can. Thanks very much. Thank you.